Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. With the election of Donald Trump, much has been made about the construction of barriers to entry along the U.S. border with Mexico. But while Trump has placed particular emphasis on control of illegal migration across this border, thousands of workers travel lawfully from cities like Tijuana into the U.S. and then back again every day. In today's episode, I talk with Rice University's Dr. Sergio Chavez about his new book, Border Lives, Fronterizos, Transnational Migrants, and Commuters in Tijuana, an ethnographic product of many years spent traveling or waiting to travel across the border with commuting workers. Dr. Chavez describes the incredible strain that border controls and bureaucracies place on low-wage workers in particular, but he also provides a remarkable account of the way that many workers leverage these difficulties into relationships and livelihood strategies. We also explore the implications of his findings for a relatively new approach to scholarship on immigration, which social scientists loosely call transnationalism. Okay, I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Sergio Chavez. Uh, thank you for having me, Matt. I really appreciate Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, your book is this ethnographic study, and uh, I thought it did a particularly great job of getting the reader very close to the everyday lived experiences of people whose lives really do span the U.S.-Mexican border. But um, before we get to that, I was wondering if you could give us a little background about kind of a specific uh, topic that you write about a bit, um, and that is the way that social scientists talk about transnationalism. I wanted to talk about that because it strikes me as this term that could mean so many different things, and it's become more specific in the literature over time. So I was wondering, could you help us understand what people mean when they talk about transnationalism, and how is it different from other approaches to the study of immigration? Uh, that's a really great question because there's a lot of debate in the literature, as you may know. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me take a step back and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, like what social scientists mean by transnationalism. So transnationalism was a concept that was developed to understand immigrant adaptation, but which took into consideration the varied and complex ways in which immigrants were engaging socially politically and economically across borders. It was meant as a concept to help remove national blinders, as some scholars would say. However, as you pointed out, there is a large debate about the level of engagement in transnational activities. Over time, some scholars have found allegiance shifts to the destination. What mm. this means is that uh, on average, uh, uh, immigrants tend to engage in less visits to the origin, send less remittances, less communication, to the point that migrants become memories in the, in the minds of friends and family back at the origin. As a result, one of the prominent scholars in this field says, uh, that's what Roger Waldinger says, trans migrants are, are an uncommon class of persons. And this makes sense, right? Mm. Uh, and particularly in our current political uh, times in which um, crossing the border has become a lot more difficult, especially in the case of Mexico-United States migration. So finding trans migrants is, is, a lot, is a lot more uncommon now because those who come to the United States 
end up shifting allegiance to the United States, and it's harder for them to travel back and engage in those type of transnational practices. It doesn't mean that they don't engage in it, but it just means that it's a lot less. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it sounds like there's a physical component in, in terms of travel, uh, a communicative component in terms of staying in touch with people, but there's also a cultural uh, component in transnationalism. Is that true? Yes, exactly, exactly. That's what it is. Um, the, the, and this actually, I think the the cultural component, which I actually have always been very interested in, uh, in, in terms of like, how is it that immigrants change you know their tastes and how they see the world over time and how does that how does that impact their relationship to the country that they uh, they come to and their and their relationship to the country that they left behind that's uh, that's not just about something that i engage in my book but also in my future research as well yeah so let's talk about the book uh, your study is looking at the particular circumstances around the tijuana border region uh, to really help refine that scholarship. So what drew you to that location and these particular people? Okay, good. That's a really great question. Um, and what 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 drew me to this uh, area? So I there's two reasons. Um, actually, there's I think more than two reasons. Well, reason number one is because Tijuana, um, I thought was such a fascinating city. Uh, my parents are actually uh, Mexican immigrants. So as as kid, when we were kids, we used to travel back and forth across the border. And I remember my parents always wanting to cross the border as quickly as possible, you know, getting across the border as quickly as possible. And I remember always just being fascinated in terms of like how large like uh, the city of Tijuana was. And I really wanted to understand its, its people. So when I was in graduate school, that drew me to that. It's like, okay, I want to go back and investigate, you know, like how Tijuana as a border city came to be. Okay, so that was one reason. And then the other reason was, um, as a, when I was in um, as an undergraduate, I took a trip to Tijuana, and I remember uh, seeing a family communicating across the international border. Um, so where there was actually somebody in the United States and and somebody in Mexico, and they were they were talking across the border. So I was really fascinated by like the power of this border and separating families. So that was another reason why I wanted to go to Tijuana, mm-hmm. and I Additionally, from a sociological perspective, border cities are fascinating places to study. I believed as a young scholar that sociologists had actually not paid enough attention to border cities, yet we had so much to learn from a cultural, political, and economic perspective and would help us uh, would help us in many ways to better understand social life. So I, even to this day, I think um, Border cities, uh, Mexican border cities in particular, are understudied, at least by U.S. scholars. There's a lot of great research by Mexican scholars, but U.S. scholars, um, we need more U.S. research. Um, scholars who study it, um, t- border cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in addition to that uh, interstate dimension um, that's often at the center of transnationalism, you're talking about how people experience transnational labor as a move uh, often from rural areas into these big sprawling urban centers like Tijuana. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about the specific rural urban dynamics in, in your study. And I'm curious to know if you would describe transnationality as an urbanizing force in general. Oh, wow. This is a really great question. Um, so um, here's what I think. Okay. So transnationalism is about developing a dual frame of reference. Okay. It is about acquiring new tastes and lifestyles. At least, as, as, at least that's what, how I've seen it through my research. 
one of the things that my research actually does, or the book does, is I, I actually studied um, ex-braceros. So these were actually uh, men who came to work in the United States as guest workers between 1942 and 1964. And these uh, young, uh, these men um, who are now, when I interviewed them, were they were in their 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm came from very uh, similar backgrounds. You know, they engaged in subsistence agriculture or sharecropping. They took care of goats, sheep, sheep and um, and horses. And when they were not playing, uh, sorry, when they were not working, they were playing marbles, fighting over girls or playing soccer or drinking beer. Um, and many scholars, uh, including myself, have shown that transnational practices alter the needs and desires of migrants, especially as they gain access to wages, radios, televisions, Mm. and and other goods, which transforms how they see the world. So I think we can think transnationality as an urbanizing process, as it provided um, the men that I studied with with access to wages and other commodities that not only transform the self, but also the urban space of Tijuana into a migrant city, okay? Mm. So, what I, so what I mean by that is I studied ex-former uh, braceros, and one of the interesting things that I found is, is for some of them, they continued to engage in transnational labor practices. So they lived in Tijuana, would cross the border daily to work in San Diego County, return back at the end, you know, your typical definition of... Um, of a trans migrant, uh, but other other braceros decided to forego the U.S. experience. But none, nonetheless, you know, they expanded their livelihood, their taste, how they saw the world by engaging in urban processes, you know, finding new jobs, moving away from agriculture, um, consuming goods that they maybe didn't have access to back in their origin, rural origin communities. So that's how I, I think, I don't know if that answers your question, mm-hmm. but um, that, that's how I would see transnationality as an urbanizing process. Yeah, well, so in part of your answer there, I think you're really showing us that uh, scholarly approaches to transnationalism can really be about agency and the power of the individual. It seems like so much of early immigration scholarship, at least what I'm familiar with, is about these pull or push factors uh, at a very like large structural level, trying to explain uh, massive migration movements. But what you're talking about strikes me as a way of looking at how uh, immigrants confront power with their own individual choices and how transnational behavior seems to maybe challenge the power of the state. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I actually would say transnationalism uh, was and maybe to a lesser extent is one of the way of of challenging a nation states, Um, not just the U.S. state, but also the Mexican state. Um, You know, it allows uh, people to obtain resources, goods and money that they would not otherwise have access to. And, and and even among the men that I uh, that I studied in that particular chapter, I mean, they came from really poor backgrounds. Many many of them have a, had actually done pretty well, achieved uh, social mobility despite having like I think uh, I talk about it in the book, having almost uh, zero year or w- zero or one year of formal education in Mexico, mm. uh, but had done really well across time, and also had really interesting uh, worldviews as a result of all the traveling that they did. You know, as a result of the traveling that they did 
made internationally, but also domestically once in the United States and also domestically within within returning to Mexico as well. So all of this, the, the traveling, I, I think, is something that um, I still am theorizing um, in my current work about how it really alters this, uh, the self. Yeah. Could you maybe break that down a little bit and give us some an example maybe of uh, the way that individual people can use, I guess, what scholars would call weapons of the weak um, to resist some of the state power that's often operationalized at the border? Oh, yeah. Okay. So one of the the difficult parts of uh, of living at the U.S.-Mexico border is that you have, well, at least when I went there, very little control over your time. Um, you know, you have very little, uh, yeah, very little control over your time. Um, and But nonetheless, people do attempt to reclaim time at the border. Now, let me take a step back. There's actually um, some scholars who talk about time. Uh, so, for example, Karl Marx himself says that man is time's carcass. Mm. E.P. E. Thompson also says that time is not past but spent. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, how time is spent at the border. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in in my book, uh, for example, I talk about the life of Ramon. He's one of my central characters, somebody who I've been following for um, uh, for a decade now. Okay, mm-hmm. so so Ramon would get up at two forty five a.m. Oh my God. So that he, yeah, I know it's crazy. And um, and when I was interviewing him, it's like he would tell you. Uh, he would uh, go through his whole day of like what it would mean to get up at 2.45 and everything he did in order to get ready so that he would catch the taxi to be able to be at their international border. So anyways, he would get up at 2.45 so that he could be at uh, work in San Diego County by 6 p.m. He did this because it was too hard to predict how long it would take to cross the border. Mm. Now, there's lots and lots of stories that I heard over and over from men and women who cross, uh, who were crossing just past midnight, sometimes at one in the morning, two in the morning, 2.45 in the case of Ramon, and getting to the U.S. and, and then sleeping in cars and waiting until their, you know, their time shift at work started, okay? So uh, for these men, uh, sorry for the for these men and women. The border strips them of the one of the most precious things that we as humans have, and that is time. And there is no way around that. State agents uh, enforce uh, you know enforce these uh, like the movement of, of of the international long lines and how long it takes and how the what state agents actually do. Those orders sometimes come from above or whatever. Um, and also, if an immigration agent is in a bad mood, he or she can hold up the line and make it go really slow, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've come from, a, uh, if you traveled across through another country and then, and then came back to the United States and then had to go through immigration and customs, you could get pretty impatient. Imagine doing that every day of your life. <laughs> That's really hard. <laughs> So uh, one of the questions that uh, uh, that uh, that my or sorry one of the things that I address is what do people do? Okay, mm-hmm. so so nonetheless, even though the the state you know has a lot of control over the time, uh, one of the things I found is they develop community. They try to have some sanity in this process by talking to others, sharing food, sharing information, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they share they share the resource of time sometimes as well. And what I mean by this is, like I said, you cannot predict how long it would take to cross the border. 
So as a result, one of the things that sometimes happen is that people will will go up to other people who they meet in, at the international border on a regular basis and say, hey, I need cuts, otherwise I'm going to lose my job. And people do give cuts uh, and you, uh, so that you could get through the border a lot. A, a lot quicker. And by the way, uh, these observations that I made at the international border were, uh, have happened, you know, happened quite a while back when I did my field work. But there's actually an online forum uh, on Facebook, which I am actually part of, in which people talk about like how terrible it is to cross the international boundary or the port of entry and like what they do in order to make time into a resource as into a resource and and do some kind of reclaiming and having some agency in this process. It's really fascinating everything that they post online. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I was also drawn to your discussion about the sort of strength of these like weak social bonds as opposed to strong ties um, that form in these sort of ad hoc spaces. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you thought about the informal relationships um, that we're developing in these spaces? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so um, I think one of the uh, key characteristics of, of Mexican migration is the importance of um, a strong ties, you know, uh, and what I mean by that is uh, ties to family and, and, and close friends and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So you really, you really depend on them to go to come to the United States. But in the case of, uh, of, of, of Tijuana and crossing the border, or if you want to migrate to the United States, um, sometimes you may not have uh, uh, close relatives who, who live nearby. So you actually depend a lot on weak ties. So uh, in, through my research, um, I write a little I write about the importance of weak ties from everything from finding work to crossing the border to getting, um, you know, a um, getting cuts in the in the in the at the port of entry so you could cross the border and then eventually over time those weak ties get cemented into very strong ties you know because it's just, it's just like through the having the common experience of living in the borderlands of having the common experience of crossing the border uh, eventually uh, creates a, a collective uh, uh, experience that everybody shares and 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 that helps mm -hmm. to uh, bring people together there's this story that you tell in the book, actually, that I think illustrates this really well. It's about these two guys that met over a pickup basketball game and sustained a relationship for a number of years. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, so there was these two guys um, that I talk about. Um, they grew up in, in the same neighborhood, so they grew up um, knowing each other little by little. But over time, they ended up uh, helping each other um, in, in life, you know, so like when one of them broke up with his girlfriend, or whatever the other one would be there to provide emotion work or whatever um, and then also when they needed to find work they would draw on them and if they couldn't help them they would uh, get other family members and stuff uh, and, and that particular experience what I uh, what I talk about in the in the basketball game is the importance of that basketball game mm -hmm. in, in in terms of cementing bonds it's like okay we're real we're about to lose this game I need you to step up your game and if you step up your game you're gonna prove yourself to me that you care about um, us winning the game you know so that that, that one I, I try to what I try to show is that 
that particular basketball game uh, had a larger meaning about how social relations uh, were crafted among people who did who were not related to one another and grew up in the same neighborhood in the same region in in a city that has characteristically been known um, to be comprised of more anonymous ties than anything else. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think you talk about some of this stuff. Um, as what you call the unintended consequences of waiting. And uh, I, ha- I had to mention this off the air, we were talking and you mentioned to me that it took you almost a decade to complete this uh, book itself. And I was thinking, oh man, that might sound a little scary to students that might be about to launch their own ethnographic work. But I was wondering if you've been thinking about like what that process has shown you about institutional power and social science, Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about your own personal unintended consequences of waiting, I guess you might say. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for bringing that. And it's uh, I, I share it just because there's a lot of there's a lot of institutional pressure for, uh, for us uh, sociologists, right, to constantly keep publishing in order for us to move through the ranks of the discipline. So uh, and sometimes that's really hard uh, if we do certain projects that are not don't give paybacks quickly or for one reason or another, our research just takes a lot longer. And that process becomes a lot more difficult when you see those around you and who are like, you know, publishing left and right. So that makes it really, really, really difficult. Um, and that that certainly made it difficult for me. Uh, but one of the things that I was really focused on was really trying to tell the best story possible about the people who came from Tijuana. And um, that was what's most important to me. That doesn't mean I, I, I didn't, you know, like, uh, um, uh, it wasn't a very difficult process or and very scary process. But the other thing too, you know what, um, what made it, uh, the reason why it ended up being a 10 year um, study is, is uh, and made it really difficult to write the book is because I collected data at one particular time in, in my life mm. where, um, you know, like how I saw the world was very different than the assistant professor uh, sociologist who was now writing about um, people in Tijuana through the lens of someone of a younger scholar. You know, the new scholar was somebody who had read more deeply, read more, um, read more across the di- across different disciplines. Right. So I saw a lot of gaps in my research. So that made it really difficult uh, for me. But nonetheless, one of the things that I that kept pushing me was like I had to get this done because I owed it to the people that I studied and additionally I needed to set a good example for like graduate students or undergraduate students uh, mm-hmm. about the the importance of perseverance in 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 this because uh, that's really I think one of the key skills that we need to develop in in uh, in this field Well, I can say this about time. If you're thinking about picking up a copy of Border Lives, do not wait. I thought it was a really excellent and urgent book. And Sergio, I really enjoyed talking with you about it today. Thank you for stopping by. No, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Um, It's always uh, good to talk about, like, uh, reflect on my book and reflect on my writing. It's just like, you don't know what it means until other people start reading it. And uh, and then I really look forward to it. But anybody who reads my book is also welcome to email me if they have any questions or whatever about the contents of the book, but also about the process of doing field research. I love talking about the process of doing field research. Sergio Chavez, thank you so much. Thank you. 
week's episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Sergio Chavez, who told us about his new book, Border Lives, Fronterizos, Transnational Migrants, and Commuters in Tijuana from Oxford University Press. Office Hours is a product of the Society Pages, made by Matthew Aguilar Champeau and myself, Matt Gunther, at the University of Minnesota. We've got more episodes like this one, plus a ton of written explainers on our website. You can check it out at thesocietypages.org.